Welcome to the Wisdom and Wellness Parsha podcast, a weekly Eden Center podcast featuring Rabbanit Shani Tarragon with insights from the Parsha about women's health, relationships, mikveh and well-being. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center that is transforming the mikveh experience by educating women how to use mikveh as the natural platform it is to connect to women's health, well-being and healthy relationships. Read our weekly blogs on a range of fascinating topics, download our wonderful publications, learn about our Balaniyot and Kala teacher trainings, and support us at theedencenter.com. Rabbanit Shani Tarragon has been a leading force in women's Torah learning and in Eden's work, and we are honored to combine two of her passions, Torah education and empowering us about women's health and well-being. Without further ado, Shani. Welcome to Eden's Wisdom and Wellness for Women Parsha podcast. This week's Parsha, Parsha Mishpatim, introduces us to the laws that serve as the basis of our Sefer Habrit, our covenant of Sinai that is celebrated at the end of the Parsha in Perak Haftalid. The Ramban points out that these mitzvot not only serve as the basis of our covenant, Ben Adam Lamakom, but also are part of our social contract, Ben Adam Lachavero. Mishpatim Yisharim Yanhigo Otam Benehim. These are the laws that establish a social dynamic within Jewish society. As Rashi points out, Lifnehem below Lifnegoyim, laws that are particular and exclusive to the Jewish people. The Ramban continues to quote Midrash Rabbah, Kol HaTorah Kulat Luya Bamishpat, Lachay Natan HaKadosh Baruch Hu Dinin Achar Aseret These laws are so fundamental and important that they're juxtaposed to the Ten Commandments. So when we open up the Parsha and we hear the laws of Eved Ivri, we understand that it's not talking about a slave in Mesopotamian times, referred to in the Code of Hammurabi, wherein a slave is treated as chattel, as property, but on the contrary. This is a case of someone who cannot pay off his debts to be or he cannot provide for himself financially. The Torah allows for him to slowly work off those debts over the course of six years, more as an employee. And ideally, ideally, he should be independent. In the subsequent parshia, we hear of a case of a man who cannot properly provide for his daughter, and he is not allowed to sell her into slavery. Rather, he has to look for a family that will provide for her long term, and as such, looking for a family in which she can eventually marry. And when she does, either marry the master or the son, at that point, she'irak suta va'onata lo yigra. He may not diminish from her food, clothing, marital relations. Here, the Torah mandates the basic provisions that a husband must provide for his wife. And those are not only food and clothing, but in fact, marital relations. We're going to explore in today's podcast the significance then of this mitzvah of onah from a halachic perspective, an emotional perspective, physiological and physical perspective as well. And therefore, I recommend that everyone pick up a copy of Rav Yashiv Knoll's The Marriage Covenant, Ishvi Isha, A Guide to Jewish Marriage, together with the supplement Etudim, A Guide to Marital Relations from a Torah Perspective, and ideally follow along with some of the sources that we're going to attach as well. Rav Knoll points out, 
that this mitzvah of onah is an expression of a love that a husband feels for his wife and that that a wife feels for her husband, not only as a natural human value, but also as an obligation based on the commandments of onatah lo yigra, together with kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself. This mutual obligation serves as the foundation for the entire marital relationship, an integral component of which is the mitzvah of onah, the duty of cohabitation. Therefore, the performance of this commandment should aim to enhance and strengthen the love between husband and wife. It's an opportunity for giving and sharing, for ensuring that one is consciously enhancing the spouse's experience rather than focusing on one's own needs. And we're going to explore so many different ramifications that help to show that this mitzvah is not just about an obligation of providing for sexual relations, but even more than that, providing for sexual pleasure, meaning the expectations of the spouse. How often should a couple engage in marital relations? How does one fulfill the mitzvah of onah? The Mishnah Tuvot, chapter 5, Mishnayot 6 and 7, teach us that a man is not allowed to accept upon himself a vow to refrain from having intercourse with his wife. According to Beit Shammai, not for more than two weeks, according to Beit Alil, not for even more than a week. The Mishnayot continue to tell us what are the times for conjugal duty prescribed in the Torah, for independent men, every day, for workers, twice a week, for donkey drivers, once a week, for camel drivers, once in 30 days, for sailors, once in six months. These are the words of Rabbi Eliezer. Chazal are presuming that a woman who marries a sailor knows and understands how little time he's going to spend at home. She has very low expectations, knowing that she's only going to see him once in every six months, and she willingly accepts the situation. In contrast, men whose work allows them to be home every night are obligated to be at their wives twice a week, and those whose occupation takes them away from home all week are obligated only once a week. So each husband's minimum obligation is determined in accordance with his circumstances and ultimately with the expectations that the wife has from him. A man accepts upon himself this basic obligation towards his wife at the time of the wedding. And at the same time, the wife also assumes the obligation of fulfilling this mitzvah as an integral aspect of married life. In the past, women tended to stay at home, and therefore Chazal never formulated the wife's obligation to her husband, albeit there are ramifications if she does refuse marital relations. Namely, she could be considered a moredit and be given a divorce. But similarly, if the husband does not provide marital relations for the wife, this is grounds for her to demand a divorce together with a ketubah. Nowadays, women are often away from home, and it stands to reason that a wife's obligation is analogous to that of her husband. Now, it's strange to speak of a legal obligation in connection with something so personal and intimate as the question of the frequency of a couple's marital relations. It seems that Chazal are offering these guidelines as a reference in the event of disagreement between husband and wife in this regard. Obviously, the existence of a minimum obligation does not limit the couple's right to be together more frequently if they so wish, and conversely, if one or both partners prefer not to engage in marital relations at a particular time, then they're not obligated to do so, even if, strictly speaking, the mitzvah of cohabitation applies at such time. They can each be mochil. They can each forego that opportunity. Since physical intimacy is inseparably bound with emotional intimacy and sexual relations are an integral and vital aspect of the overall marital relationship, the guiding principle is for these issues to be resolved by mutual agreements. This will contribute to the couple's love for each other and bring about a more complete and wholehearted fulfillment of the mitzvah, which is why the basis really is even more communication. Dr. David Ribner, one of the foremost sexologists in Israel, points out that 
Tikshorit. That communication between the couple really serves as the basis for their emotional intimacy and then their sexual intimacy. A man needs to recognize that even with an agreed-upon framework, his wife may not always be open to sexual relations. There are also times when, for physiological reasons, a woman may experience a diminished sexual drive, for example, during the early months of pregnancy when she's a little nauseous, or postpartum when her vaginal region may still be sensitive, and, sure enough, PMS when she's expecting her period. The frequency of marital relations can also be affected by external factors, fatigue, a bad mood, the need to wake up early the next morning. Any of these may either cause a partner to decline marital relations at a particular time, and yes, they inevitably arise, and the other partner needs to be considerate and avoid applying undue pressure. Satisfying marital relations depend upon both the husband and the wife being physically and emotionally ready and willing. And both of them should anticipate this as well, knowing that there are going to be times wherein one is going to be very tired and try in some way, shape, or form not only to discuss this, but also perhaps to compensate in other ways. In the absence of mutual interest, there's no point in trying to persuade one spouse against his or her will, and we're going to see that this is in fact one of the midot that is not recommended. (laughs) Notwithstanding the need for mutual desire in order to engage in intimacy, there are times also when a man experiences acute sexual tension, creating an overpowering need for sexual release, and at that point, important for the wife to be understanding, and uh, wherever possible, to respond positively to her husband's overtures as well. There are many women who never experience such tensions, though for men, they're not uncommon. And we are going to pay attention then to both the physical, emotional, psychological differences between men and women. In summary, with regard to frequency, it is imperative that a couple agree on a frequency of relations that's mutually acceptable to both parties. Taking all this into account, one also has to realize that a woman is going to be a nida for minimally 12, 12 days out of a month. In addition, there are certain laws of separation wherein marital relations are forbidden, not only when she's a nida, but also on Yom Kippur, on Tisha B'Av, during the seven days of Shiva, when either the husband or the wife are sitting Shiva, marital relations are prohibited, and on all other days, marital relations are permitted. Nonetheless, we find in the Mishnah Bura as well that there are certain signs of religious piety to refrain from marital relations on public fast days, on the night following Tisha B'Av, unless it was postponed from Shabbat to Sunday, and on both nights of Rosh Hashanah, the night of Hoshana Rabbah, these are all Yemei Din, the night of Shemini Atzeret, the first night of Pesach, when, or first two nights of Pesach, when one is engaged in the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim and on the night of Shavuot. But these are really stringencies and not necessarily binding rules. And certainly, if it's a night of the Hertzvilah, then one is allowed to to have relations, the couple should engage in marital relations, and similarly, similarly, a couple that has not yet fulfilled the mitzvah of a periyavirivia. At the same time, Chazal also lists in the Darim Daf a number of situations in which marital relations are prohibited because the mutual attraction between the husband and the wife is absent, thereby transforming 
the entire sexual act to a very raw physical act. This isn't a case where a wife does not desire marital relations at the time, in which case it would be more, again, unconsensual sex at that time, or there is antagonism between the spouses, or one of the partners has been put, placed in cherem, and one should not go within dalit amo. That's not really relevant in our times. Or the wife wants a divorce, or the husband has made up his mind to divorce his wife, or either the husband or the wife is drunk. And we're not just talking a little tipsy, but really drunk, that it's just an animalistic act. Or either partner is thinking of someone other than his or her spouse during relations, or one of the partners is asleep. So here are some of the, the I'm going to say limitations, but actually more prohibitions that teach us all the more so that intimacy is supposed to be an expression of love and not just a physical act. At the same time, the mitzvah not is not just about procreation. Judaism does not overlook or underestimate the physical aspects of marriage. On the contrary, Rav Soloveitchik points out in Family Redeemed that one sacrificial withdrawal from the sinful erotic paradise of change and variety is completed, the natural element in marriage comes to the fore. The two partners owe each other not only fidelity, but also full gratification of their sexual needs. Refusal or failure by one of the partners to satisfy the conjugal rights of the other is sufficient reasons for divorce. Each one must observe these laws of consortium with regard to the other. The marriage must not be converted into an exclusively spiritual fellowship. Marriage without carnal enjoyment and erotic love is contrary to human nature and is to be dissolved." And therefore, not only does the Gemara mention various stories, Gana, whether it be Ava Ravchia teaching his daughters Gana, how to enjoy relations, or brachot that are given to a man who is able to have his wife come to an orgasm first, or whether it's as Rav Yitzchak of Korbel in his Sefer Mitzvot Katan in the Smak teaches us that the mitzvah for a man to make his wife happy, as we find in Zvarim Parach of Zalid, Vesimach is connected to the negative prohibition in this week's parsha of Va'onata Lo Yigra. How great is this mitzvah? For behold, the Torah exempted him from going to the army for its sake. And even if his wife is pregnant, it's a mitzvah to make her happy if he understands that she is desirous of this and he has to do this. From here, we see that the mitzvah of Ona is not just about sexual relations, but that she enjoy, that she has pleasure from this. The Ramban tells us as well that it is imperative that the husband and put the wife into the proper mood, pull her heart, settle her mind, make her happy, so that you tie her mind with your mind and her intention with your intention. Tell her words of lust and love and desire, which uh, will help her appreciate the entire act as well. Rav Moshe Feinstein, also in Evan Ha'ezer, in uh, his vote there, Paskins, that what does it mean, Vonatalo Yigra? It means that he must make her happy and give her pleasure when he sees that she is desirous of him. And similarly, when he is leaving on a trip, as Rav Yehuda ben Levi says in Masechet Yavamot, that a man must visit his wife because when she yearns for him, then there is certainly a biblical obligation. Even at the stipler, Rav Yaakov Yisrael Kanievsky 
wrote a letter to his students wherein he spoke about the marital obligation of, se- of sex. And he said the marital obligation, all forms of contact, of intimate contact, touch and kissing are included. The Chazon Ish allows for a man to have sexual thoughts for his wife when she's not in Niza for the sake of becoming physically intimate with her. And a man must do all that his wife desires. Thus, he should lie with his wife together naked and touching and kissing. He even says approximately a quarter of an hour before intercourse under normal circumstances. And if they're both already excited, then yes, uh, he can spend less time in foreplay. And after the intercourse, he should lie with his wife for about a half an hour because this will give her greater pleasure than the act itself. Ona, says the stipler, is a biblical mitzvah no less than eating matzah. And one who does not fulfill it when his wife is pregnant, then he is a complete sinner. And he's like a thief or abandoned because he's stealing from his wife that that is obligated to her. And this is tantamount to murdering his wife, he says, for it's known that the primary longing of woman in her world is that her husband should love her. And when she sees that this is not so, then it's close to sakanat nefashot, the terrible pain and anguish that she has. It's almost like living as a widow, he says. And with regard to the act itself, the mitzvah of Ona, and there he says, again, according to the Torah, one has to first appease one's wife, and one has to make sure that it is not going to be an act of coercion at all. One has to be very careful to make his wife happy at the time of sex, before it and after it, and recognize that this is a mitzvah, even if he was not obligated in this. And certainly, given that he is obligated to her in this regard, according to the law, says all the more so. So uh, let us recognize how significant the mitzvah of Ona is. And now we're going to talk a little bit before we go back to the various halachot. Now to speak about what does it mean? How does he provide for sexual pleasure? And unfortunately, there are many women and men out there who don't necessarily know and how how to provide for this pleasure. And it's remarkable how HaKadosh Baruch Hu created us in such a way wherein it's so clear that we're supposed to be enjoying from this marital intimacy. One of the first to really explore this in the 50s through the 90s were William Masters and Virginia Johnson as they wrote on the nature of human sexual relationship and responses. And they spoke about four stages of the the sexual response model. Stage number one, the excitement or initial arousal. Stage number two, the plateau right before orgasm. Stage number three, orgasm. And stage number four, the resolution. And what's interesting is that they notice various differences with regard to the male sexual response and the female sexual response. The male sexual response generally, and these are all generalizations to which there are numerous exceptions, the men generally are easily aroused, right? Just the thought of their wife sometimes can arouse them, meaning there's an immediate response from the pituitary gland straight to the scrotum, rise in testosterone, automatically rise in, in a heartbeat, rise in blood pressure, semen, and that is now going to rush through the capillaries together with the blood, allowing for the arousal manifest through the male erection. And then right before, and the actual orgasm, which is over the course of 
sometimes seconds, the ejaculation, that's the male orgasm, and then his resolution. And they notice that there is a refractory in the men and not in women, namely after or as part of their resolution, they are very tired. Their body can't necessarily respond immediately thereafter, as opposed to the woman, albeit it may take her longer to be aroused, sometimes even in a very non-synchronous way with her husband. He's already in a stage of resolution, and she's just getting or starting to be aroused. And this can sometimes be frustrating, certainly in the early stages of marriage, before the husband has exercised and the muscles to be able to maintain a plateau prior to orgasm for a little longer. And the woman at the same time, once she has an orgasm, she does not have the same refractory. Her resolution is quite different, allowing her to experience multiple orgasms that in fact can even be of greater pleasure than that of the man. And her resolution is very gradual, which is why it's significant to maintain intimacy even during the stage of resolution. And what's also remarkable is that her resolution is not going to be refractory in the sense that she maintains a certain high. And I like to call it even the phenomenon of the dirty socks. You can ask your husband to put her dirty socks in the hamper so many times. And you see you went to sleep. His dirty socks are still on the floor. But strangely enough, can't really explain this, but after relations, you can pick up those dirty socks and almost dance them to the hamper because the woman is still on this very special high and that's part of her mitzvah ona and enjoying the intimacy even after the orgasm. And interestingly, in addition to the basic model, and as we know, there are ways in which her arousal can certainly be enhanced. Many people or I should say husbands, wives in general, when they first get married, they don't necessarily learn all this. And sometimes that already serves as a deterrent from the continued experience of pleasure. It's imperative that couples learn the basic acts or stimuli important in physical and sexual relations, beginning with recognizing that the woman doesn't necessarily respond immediately the way that a man does to a touching of sexual organs, but rather to go to the erogenous zones, generally starting with the face, the neck, behind the ear, working one's way down to the uh, the breast, the areola, the nipples, keeping in mind that these are all sexual organs as well that are connected directly to her vaginal tract, which has a mucus lining and fibroids and nerve endings that will respond with the tingling sensation of lubricants already being excreted from her vaginal tract. Very, very important in the stages of arousal. Somehow even achieve an orgasm this way. And then slowly but surely between the legs themselves, the labia majora, the labia minora, the clitoris, or the clitoris, the dagdagan, as it's known in Hebrew. And in order to uh, stimulate that area, sometimes known also as the female penis, because of the nerve endings that are there, to stimulate that area, and which only furthers the contractions, both the vaginal cervical contractions that will release even more lubricants, allowing her entire pelvic muscle area to be relaxed, and thereby not only to make the entire penetration 
easier, but so much more enjoyable. So all of this, not only as part of foreplay, but as part of the woman's state of arousal imperative. Now, it may seem that she is just lying there like a log the entire time. But actually, ahava, as we know, and Rav Dessler points this out beautifully in Mechtab Meliyahu, ahava comes from have, have, give, give. The more one gives, the more one is invested in loving. And this has also been scientifically proven that the more pleasure the woman experiences, the more enjoyment the man will receive as well. So as he arouses her, she would want to arouse him as well. Also, again, the kissing, the stroking of the chest, and certainly his sexual orgasms, very, very gently, the scrotum, the testicles, but primarily the shaft and the corona of the man's avar and containing millions of nerve endings and therefore gently stroking up and down, thereby arousing him at the same time. What's interesting, though, is that we know that this is not all that sexual arousal entails. But as uh, Chazal have spoken about thousands of years ago, and as we find the Rishonim and Achronim speak about, and Rashi says, Tashmish, Ona, we're talking about also the mitzvah of enjoyment. So in 2000, Rosemary Bassan, who was studying male sexual dysfunction disorder, began to to also study female sexual dysfunction disorder, and she created what's known now as the Rosemary Bassan nonlinear model of sexual response, incorporating and the basis or the need for intimacy. And she explains particularly with regard to the female sexual response that the only way that this can truly be appreciated is if she first feels, if the woman first feels emotional intimacy. There are times, she says, that there may be a spontaneous sexual response for the woman, but generally it begins with her sense of feeling emotionally intimate with her husband, as opposed to men for whom the cycle generally begins with sexual stimuli, and perhaps this is why in Helchot Negiah, it is initially easier for the woman to refrain as well, because in order to feel even some type of sexual arousal, the woman must first feel emotionally intimate. John Gutman speaks about the typical case of a couple sitting over dinner, and the husband is complimenting the wife, and then he picks up a glass and he says, oh, the glass is somewhat dirty, and that was it. He tries. He washes the dishes. He tries with various overture, and she's not responding. And he asks her finally in bed, what's wrong? And she says, you insulted my domestic capabilities. And he doesn't understand what's going on. And you can imagine that this can transform to World War III. What are you talking about? I complimented you. I was so loving tonight. What happens? And finally, hopefully, she'll reveal that and he, she felt very insulted. She says, what do you mean? Again, you insulted me so much. You said that the dishes, the glasses are so dirty. And he hopefully will explain that he meant, no, next time I go to the supermarket, I have to change the dishwashing liquid. But basically, she doesn't feel emotionally intimate, rather very, very sensitive. And the only way that they're going to be able to respond one to the other or that she'll be able to respond to sexual stimuli as if she feels emotionally intimate. Therefore, foreplay actually begins not at the time of of the beginning of the act of lovemaking, but rather and really is what she takes with her from the last time that they had some level of intimacy 
And therefore, the three main take-home messages that we can learn from studying the Bassan sexual response cycle is number one, sexual pleasure and satisfaction aren't reliant on an orgasm, though orgasms may certainly be a nice bonus, but rather they're so related to emotional intimacy. Secondly, sexual desire doesn't always have to come before sexual activity or arousal. Sometimes getting physical and experiencing arousal will actually elicit desire. And thirdly, external factors such as relationship dynamics and intimacy, weighing rewards and costs of the sexual, the previous sexual experience may play a very important role in the sexual response. When Rosemary Bassan wrote this new female sexual response model, incorporating the importance of emotional intimacy and sexual stimuli and relationship satisfaction, she recognized that this is much more complex than a male sexual functioning and that female functioning is dramatically and significantly affected by numerous psychological issues, such as satisfaction with a relationship or self-image. Therefore, not recommended to get on the scale before going into bed. Again, previous negative sexual experiences. She uh, recognized that, again, endorphins, right? Certainly put one in a better mood and allow for greater emotional intimacy. Again, positive self-image, exercising before going to bed, uh, compliments for sure, and uh, trauma can affect emotional intimacy. Someone, not necessarily her husband, her boss, screamed at her at work that day. And uh, this can all serve as a deterrent for, for relations. According to Bassan, women have many reasons for engaging in sexual activity other than sexual hunger or drive, as the traditional both uh, Masters and Johnson try to maintain. Because uh, most women in, in long-term relationships she explained, do not frequently think of sex or experience spontaneous hunger for sexual activity, but rather it's the increased emotional closeness and intimacy or overtures from a partner that in fact put the woman in a greater sense of, of sexual activity. Now the good news is that even according to Bassan, once there is emotional intimacy that's felt, then the woman is more easily responsive to sexual stimuli and then she reaches sexual arousal, which more or less mimics the male sexual response, the arousal, the sexual drive. Then what that leads to is emotional and physical satisfaction. And even the emotional satisfaction is felt by the man as well, leading to emotional intimacy. The primary difference then being that the man's and the woman's cycle ends with emotional intimacy, wherein the female sexual response cycle actually begins with emotional intimacy as well. And this tells us all the more how imperative it is that to fulfill the mitzvah of Ona, the man must take into account the woman's emotional state and to uh, speak, to uh, recognize that as he arouses her through erogenous areas, she may in, feel, in fact feel closer with him. And that's something very positive. Sometimes women then tend to open up in the form of talking a lot and uh, to anticipate that as well, both for the man and for the woman to understand that. And uh, yes, she may now start to talk, even though maybe sometimes better to push off some of the conversation for the intimacy felt thereafter as well. Basically, the guiding principle during marital relations should be about have-have, should be a have should be about giving. The ability to give 
It's really a divine trait, and the act of giving ennobles a person as part of his or her tzelem elokim. When one concentrates on pleasing his or her spouse, not only does one provide the spouse with maximum pleasure, but is spiritually uplifted by the act of giving. The Raiva talks about this in his Balei HaNefesh. And at the same time, concentrating on the needs and pleasures of one's partner is not purely a selfless act, because it does bring to a richer experience and a greater sexual satisfaction than really focusing on one's selfish gratification. What I hope everyone has gained from this very brief podcast is that marital relations are a delicate and complex process. And therefore, it is imperative to create a favorable atmosphere in the home, one full of love, mutual affection, especially in at times when there is an expectation of marital relations. Definitely to attend both the husband and the wife to one's physical appearance and grooming. Recognize that there's a gradual progression to higher levels of physical intimacy. I always tell Kalot that I teach that they may know something now, but enough physical, emotional, marital relations, this is all a work in progress. And uh, to realize that they have to continue to learn and to discover one another. And every stage brings its own challenges, but also opportunities. Mutual stimulation is so important in preparation for intercourse. And uh, recognizing that when the woman is sufficiently aroused, that there's something beautiful about intercourse at that point, maintaining physical contact and intimate conversation, following intercourse, and all this so important as part of the fulfillment of the mitzvah of Ona. And to end with, this is really just an introduction to appreciating how halacha, and as we see in this week's parsha, the basis of a covenantal relationship, both ben adam l'makom, and Ben Adam Lachaviro between husband and wife is so imperative to our Brit, to our covenants, to our relationships. And I wish everyone continued Hatzlacha and Bracha in exploring all aspects of the mitzvah of Ona to make sure that they really can gain the maximum from their mutual relationships. Shabbat Shalom Umivorach. This week's podcast is sponsored by Tamar and Tani Benevitz and family in memory of Tamar's dear mum, Sherry Raskas. To sponsor an episode, go to bit.ly slash sponsor podcast. So we want to invite all of our listeners to join for a very special evening to come to Tel Aviv Tuesday, March 3rd at the play Mikvah by Hadar Galron at Habima Theater, followed by a post-show discussion with myself, together with the actresses and Eden's founder and director, Dr. Naomi Grummet. The play explores themes that arise around the mikvah and the complex relationship that women have with it. Tickets can be purchased at the attached website, and you can also support the Eden Center through sponsorship of that evening. The play is open to both men and women, so come with friends, use it as your date night, and I look forward to seeing you there. This episode of Wisdom and Wellness was recorded by Shani Terrigan, music courtesy of Shimona Gottlieb, and is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe. We also welcome your feedback and questions on the podcast. Email us at podcasts at theedencenter.com. Thank you.